I felt that the voices in my head and the pain was too much. And I walked to the edge of the dock and I looked in partially frozen like where we were and I jumped in. I wanted to kill myself. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm your host, Al Levin. Really excited. Today on the line we have John Callis. John is an Emmy-nominated Hollywood director, writer, and producer, as well as an author. John, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you are somebody who's incredibly accomplished in Hollywood, yet your story comes with a lot of trauma. And uh, from what I've learned, uh, just digging in a bit into your biography and so forth, sounds like your trauma started at quite a young age. Uh, It did. um, Actually, Al, it started 10 days after my third birthday when my dad died. That's when... um, Everything fell apart for me. Wow. Age three and your dad passes away. And I'm guessing at three, like, you probably didn't even know what that really meant. Um, At some level, I did because after he died, um, I really started acting out. I was, I hated everything. I hated religion. I hated people. I hated the world. I just felt really abandoned and, um, lonely and you know my dad's gone what do you do i mean you're kind of lost right Um, we were living in a um, economically challenged neighborhood what area what state were you in uh new jersey okay and uh, my mom was pregnant with a fourth kid and miscarried at the funeral oh my god so that's kind of the start of my life wow so clearly at age three, I mean, you're able to notice if you don't understand the concept of death or anything like that, clearly all of a sudden this man is out of your life, your father. Yeah, big um, figure. Yeah. Are you able to share with us what happened to your dad? Because he must have been fairly young. He was, uh, I believe he was 37 years old. Wow. Um, he was, uh, just a little backstory, and I believe this is all tied into how he died he was with the Provo Marshal during World War II, and he's one of the only Americans that had a pass to Dachau concentration camp. 
and he was investigating crimes committed by and to American soldiers. So I've got pictures of all of Hitler and his goons from my dad um, and him hold, holding dead bodies with, you know, their cavities exposed. And, you know, they didn't have um, hygiene back then, so they were using their bare hands and he was smoking like a chimney. So when he got out of the war and he came back home, uh, he got what's called lymphosarcoma, which is a cancer of the lymph nodes and the lungs. And um, it just ate him alive and he died. Oh, but before... Before he died on my third birthday, you know, and you're talking 10 days before this man dies, he brought home a German shepherd called Bullet, which is in the book. Um, and he had petitioned the army to give it to him because he was his dog during the war. And apparently he had done some pretty heroic things as a dog. And it was my birthday gift from my dad. So that's the thing I had to hold on to. And uh, unfortunately, one day when we were walking, a little baby got out of the crib and it was crawling across the street. And Bullet, I guess, must have known what was going on. He ran across the street, pushed the baby out of the way with his nose and got run over by a bus. So I'm sitting there watching this blood of my dog running down the drain. So it, it just was not a pleasant experience to start oh life with. goodness. I was about to say, like, I bet you really bonded with that dog, and then all of a sudden, that's tragic end to the dog's life, too. And that was while you were still three after your dad had passed away that you lost the dog? I think it was more like four or maybe five. You know, it, right. it's a little fuzzy, but I know I've had him for a while, and yeah. the dog used to take me for walks. And, wow. and, and in the book, you'll read about a bully that tried to get a hold of me and stuff, and the dog almost ripped him apart, so. Wow. And it's really, it's pretty compelling. Like, I mean, the dog passed away as a hero, as it seems like your dad was as well. That's, that's what, and, and the double abandonment. I mean, this is the only thing I had to anchor myself to my dad. Yeah. And to lose that and my dad was, uh, it was just too much. I, I completely lost everything. I started having dreams of falling down a spiral and it, it just, it was horrible. So dream, you started having nightmares, it sounds like. And I think from, from a bit of what I looked at, it sounds like you started acting out a lot. Yeah, I did. And uh, it got so bad that my mother and then my stepdad, who she married when I was 12, uh, was given a choice by the courts. Either you send them to military school or we're going to send them to reform school. So oh. at the age of 12, my mother drives me from New Jersey to New York City puts me on a train by myself to go to a military school in Virginia. Oh, and goodness. by the time I got to Virginia, I had already gotten in a fight uh, with a cadet. And the first night at military school, I got knocked out three times. Now, having said that, I will openly admit I had a mouth on me. Right. And, right. and that's what started a lot of problems in military school, which um, was three years of absolute hell. Well, well, you had so much trauma you were already dealing with. So take us back a little bit, like... From age five to twelve, what what kind of things transpired that all of a sudden you're in front of a judge telling your family it's it's this or or military school? Well, a couple of things come to mind now. Um, one of which my uh, my brother got beat up by this guy, and I hid in the junkyard until I found him walking through, and. Um, we got into a pretty big fight, and I, I, I don't know, the adrenaline must have been strong on me, but I picked him up and threw him in a ditch. And I didn't realize that the ditch had panes of glass laying across it, and they went through it. 
And of course I ran because I was scared and the police showed up that night at my house and my mother answered the door and found out that the kid was in the hospital in critical condition. They didn't know if he was going to live or not. Oh my goodness. So, uh, fortunately for me, he did live. Um, then um, when I was a little older, I went to a party with a friend of mine who um, his parents were out of town and he said, yeah, you know, we'll drink beer, we'll have a lot of fun and blah, blah, blah. And this girl that I was um, chatting up with um, said she had to get home and she was already late and she'd be grounded for the rest of her life. So I asked my friend if I could borrow his parents' car. He goes, yeah, but you got to be really careful. I said, don't worry, I know how to drive. My aunt taught me how to drive. I'm, I'm okay. So I was very careful, brought the car back. And when I got back, there was police all over the place. And I got out and I said, who are you? I said, John Callis. And immediately arrested. And out comes his parents who had just come home, surprised them from their vacation. Oh, so, no. Yeah. So he lied and said, Mom, I didn't give him the keys. And I said, why are you lying? That's, that's bullshit. That's not what happened. So the next day in school, I walked straight up to him. He says, John, and pow, knocked him right out. Wow. I, uh, well, then the judge got a hold of us, and fortunately, my attorney um, did a countersuit saying that, that these parents left unsupervised underage kids with alcohol, which is a big offense in New Jersey. So fortunately, we kind of did a little swapping, and they dropped the charges, but that's when it started revealing I needed some help. Right, right. And so I know you talk about even experiencing depression prior to age 12, I mean, is this, I would imagine it's like looking in hindsight at some of your behaviors and your actions that make you realize now, like, yeah, I was certainly experiencing trauma, maybe depression and other things related to, to all of these pieces, I would imagine. Uh, that's very true. And actually, it's interesting you brought that up because in my memoir, uh, When the Rain Stops, I, I actually put two voices in. I tell the story from the little boy that I was in a very honest, raw, and open uh, book kind of thing. Then in a gray box, I put the perception of what I am as an adult on the perception of what I thought was reality as a little boy. So I'm reflecting as I go through the book of what really happened as compared to what I felt as a boy suffering from depression, anxiety, abandonment, and an attempted suicide. Wow. So. So you get both views going through the book. And I think for those who are struggling, they can see the difference between what we feel as a depressed person and what the reality really is about that. Right. Because I think everything can, can feel and seem so skewed when you're in the midst of depression. No, no question about it. Yeah. Wow. That is really cool. And, you know, uh, I want to uh, admit that I have not yet had a chance to read your entire book. I have read portions, and it's incredible. Your writing is amazing. So I'm looking forward to sitting down and reading the entire book. But so let's get back to your story. So before age 12, can you describe, I know you certainly are talking about how you acted out a lot, and that I'm sure is related to losing your dad, losing the dog, all of this trauma and getting into fights. And, and I know also that anger is a symptom of depression, one that a lot of people may not realize. Did, can you look back and, and point to other things about how your depression was manifesting? Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I lost interest in life completely. I didn't believe in any religion or God or any of that. And I, I really felt the whole world just 
hated me and I hated them. And um, then there was a little bit of a shining light. Uh, my fifth grade teacher, I fell in love with. I had a big crush on her. Okay. And but I couldn't concentrate in class. It just wasn't my thing. And um, I was. She had me at the blackboard one day, and I just couldn't figure out what the hell she was talking about. And she looked at me and she goes, "Are you really that stupid?" And wow. my my heart was just crushed. And I, of course, I ran out of the school and went and hot, hid in the woods. And my mother had to take me to the principal the next day, and we had to work it out. And they thought that I had a learning disability. So on top of me feeling stupid, they put me in remedial reading where all the stupid kids really were. Right. So it just it just started compounding my depression and anxiety that. Okay, I must be stupid. My teacher, who I love, says I'm stupid. Oh, now they got me in, in the stupid class of all the stupid kids that can't read stupid words. Right. So, so I even resisted that, and I, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Wow, that, you know, I'm actually an educator and administrator, and I often talk to teachers about the power of our words and how we have to be really careful and how we can lift somebody up and actually, you know, turn them into authors just by our our words to them or crush them and break them down without intending to. And we have to be so careful because our words are so powerful. Wow. So you get in, put into a remedial class, you're already struggling with depression. And then I'm sure, you know, what a hit on your self-esteem. Oh my goodness. Are you able to get out of bed and get to school? And again, we're talking before you're even 12, and what was your school days like? Did you have friends in school? Um, I, I did. I had a very close friend called Michael. Um, he and I were best buddies, basically. You know, I was pretty much the same kid in the, the schoolyard as most people, except I hid behind the mask of being happy when, in fact, I was depressed as hell. Right. So it was it was a little tough to keep up that act for so long. So yeah. at the end of class in school, I would just go home and uh, basically sit there and cry and convince myself that my dad was still alive and that he was on a mission someplace and doing some very spy work or some undercover work or something. Just I had to find an anchor that that he was still alive and yeah, I, he wasn't. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And and did you? I mean, at that point, were you able to kind of convince yourself, do you think, that he really was alive and out on a mission? Or did you realize, I'm just going to pretend? No, it got to the point where when, when we were in school and stuff, kids would say, what are you doing with your dad this weekend? I'd say, oh, we're going to go to the ballpark or, you know, maybe play some catch or something. You know, we're going. I just didn't want to be that kid. You know, oh, yeah. he's the kid that doesn't have a dad. Right. And I, I was convinced he was on a mission until one day I, I was up in the attic at my parents' house, which I was not allowed to be in. And uh, I found some letters uh, written to my mother, and I started going through them. And every one of them was about, I'm really sorry, Gus, that's his name, um, died. I hope the kids are okay. And I sat in the attic for hours just crying, thinking, he really is dead. Wow. I, am really, I am really alone. Yeah. Wow. And at that point, you know, I know this was quite a few years ago, too, and I, I bet nobody, it never even occurred to anybody that here is a poor kid, you know, age 10, 11, who, who needs help mentally and needs help to work through trauma. Probably never occurred to anybody, and maybe you're not even to your mom at the time. 
Well, to be fair to the situation, in those years that I was growing up, there really wasn't a focus on mental health at all. Right. And it and the, it was the old school of kids should be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. So if even you brought it up, you know, somebody would say, well, you just get over it. Snap to get, put your shit together and get on. Oh, excuse me. I shouldn't have used that, that word. No but, problem. No problem. Okay. You know, get yourself together, you know, and stop acting this way. And, you know, it's like every time I tried to talk about anything, I'd get cut off and I could never finish a sentence, which kind of carried through some of my adult life. Right. Uh, but it just, I was never heard, never seen. Yeah. Um, my sister's friend uh, raped me when I was very young. Oh so I, I, I had to deal with that before I went to military school as well. Right. So, so my sexual orientation was a little skewed and. Yeah, and it got worse from there. <laughs> wow. Did anybody know about that situation, your mom or any adults? No, I never brought it up. Yeah. I just, I figured nobody was going to believe me anyway, because anything I said, they, they thought it was nonsense. Right. Did your sister realize that had happened? Nope. Nope. Wow. Not until, my sister passed away last December, but um, before she passed away, she had read the book and she called and she goes, you know, the only girl that I know who had the large breast was this girl's name, she said. I said, yeah, that was her. She goes, why didn't you tell me? I said, what am I going to do, tell you that your girlfriend tried raping me? She goes, well, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, because it wasn't the type of thing you talked about back then. Right. It just wasn't it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how you pointed out some of the behavior still as an adult and when you were talking about masking it, you know, so many adults do that too, right? We just put that smile on and stuff our feelings down and pretend like everything's great. And I mean, I was trying to do that as well when I was in a deep, dark depression and I'd come home, see the kids, make it through, and then I would just lose it and just go through crying fits. So so 12 years old hits and you're in front of the court system and they say... You know, we're going to send him away or you're going to think about military school and your mom chooses, okay, let's send John to military school. Yep, that was pretty much it. And like you said, she is she drove you there, is that right? No, no, she drove me from New Jersey to New York City to catch a train by myself at 12. And I had to make a, a transfer in Washington, D.C. And she saw one of the cadets was going to military school and she paid him money behind my back to make sure I got on the train to Washington, D.C. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and when I found out that, <laughs> I wasn't happy. And then one of the cadets started up with me, so I whacked him. And he whacked me in. We got into a fight and blood all over the place. And I think con- that's one of the excerpts I read from your book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, holy crap, that must have just felt like, again abandonment mom is sending me away she's not even taking me all the way there you're 12 years old trying to figure out how to get to military school yep wow al it was the worst three years of my life i can't even begin to well i do describe it in the book but it's it would take us a couple hours to really get into all the things that happened i mean they broke broomsticks over my back, whipped me with a wire hanger. I mean, they had me doing military drills because I had so many demerits. Eventually, I met a guy when I was in one of the older grades um, that had long hair, and I'd never been around anyone with long hair. We started talking, and he introduced me to the peace movement and what was going on, and we made a plan to, um, to run away from the military academy the next day. 
uh, and the, the captains and everything were beating the crap out of him, calling him a girl, threatening to cut his hair, and he just refused to. And I went out um, uh, of my room to go to the bathroom, and it was an open courtyard where you have three or four layers of rooms stacked, but it was an open ceiling. And I looked up, and my friend was swinging by a rope. Um, and to this day, I will categorically say that they killed him. He did not commit suicide. Wow. So, uh, oh, my goodness. So that was another abandonment issue I had to deal with. Right. And when you talk about all of these kind of beatings at military school that you went through, that was from the adults or the older cadets and known by the adults? The older cadets, known yeah. by the adults, but turned a blind eye because my mother had to sign a paper that said that you cannot interfere with any military discipline we deem necessary to discipline your child. Wow. And they took that seriously. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So it was three years in the military school. Three years in the military school. Yeah. And I literally turned over a table at a restaurant that my parents came to visit me and said, I'm telling you, you'll never see me again if you ever think of sending me back to this place. I will never be seen again. Yeah. So, so they decided to put me in a private school. Okay. So they pulled you out after the third year. Yep. Okay. But it, it didn't get any better. Yeah. So by now, so you went there at 12, probably left the military school at 15, and your parents listened to you and, and sent you to a private school near, near I, your home? Um, well, I was in Massachusetts, so it was closer. I mean, it, it was in close enough dif dif distance where I could come home for Thanksgiving. At okay. least, you know. But so it was still away from home, kind of like a private boarding school. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, from the age of 13, I never lived with 12, sorry. From the age of 12, I never lived with my family again. I mean, wow. I visited, but I never had a, a home again. Home. Was, yeah. Okay. Tell us about the private school. So age 15, you show up at private school, so that's probably you're just starting high school maybe? Pretty much, yeah. But I was there and I thought, okay, I have an opportunity to just be in the peace movement and all that. And first day, this six-foot tall guy, maybe 6'2", I don't know, came up to me and goes, hey, I hear you went to military school. I said, uh, yeah, I did. I'm smoking a cigarette. He's smoking a cigarette. He goes, uh, don't they teach you how to kill in that thing? I said, look, I, I really don't want to get into it, but to answer your question, yes, they do, but it's not what I'm about. He goes, stand up. I want you to see if you can kill me. And I said, I really don't want to get into this, please. And he started spitting at me, smacking me. And for three years, he pushed me around every time he got a hold of me and caused me a lot of pain. And, and by the time, uh, about a year or so into it, um, I felt that the voices in my head and the pain was too much. And I walked to the edge of the dock and I looked in partially frozen like where we were and I jumped in. I wanted to kill myself. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this was, this was another a classmate of yours. That was a classmate. Yeah. And clearly just bullying and bullying and bullying you. Were there other students that you got along with or did other students bully you or what was that like? Well, he had the, we'll call it the popular group. Okay. Um, and some of them like me, but they would always say, look, you know, we can't go against him because he's such an, a jerk and, um, you know, he'll start up with us. But, uh, you know, we all think you should just get in a fight with him and get, get it out of your system. 
And I said, you guys are sick. I mean, is the only way I got to prove my worth by getting in a fight? I don't want to know about it. I'm in the peace movement. I'm going to stick to it. Yeah. And then um, a coach came up to me and said, why aren't you playing sports? I said, you know, I don't want to talk about it. And he sat with me for about an hour and got it out of me about my dad. And he said, look, I'm the soccer coach. Why don't you come? Let me teach you how to play. I said, I really don't know how to play anything. He goes, I'll teach you. And I got so good at it that I became um, uh, not only soccer, but I became undefeated in wrestling. Uh, I was one of the top defense hockey players because I found an outlet for all my aggression and anger. Right, right. Hey, I want to come back just for a bit because I kind of breezed past it. And I want to acknowledge that, like, you jumped in a partially frozen lake, was it? Yep. Like, hoping to end your life and end the misery. I wanted to stop. Yeah. And was the idea like, I'm just going to go in there? And did you know how to swim? You were just thinking, I'm just going to jump. Oh, no, I was a great swimmer. Yeah. But you wanted to just jump in your head. You were thinking, I'll jump in, I'm going to freeze and just die. Pretty much. Yeah. And, And the water did start coming into my lungs, and it was so cold that I jumped out of the lake. I mean, I grabbed the dock and pulled myself out, coughing up water, and that was... Yeah. uh, As far as swimming, I was on a military school swim team, so I knew how to swim. I just chose not to. Right, right. And did it... I'm imagining you probably didn't share that with anybody at the time. Well, one of the students actually watched the whole thing and ran down with a blanket and put around me. Wow. And he said... He said, what are you doing? I said, what do you care? You don't give a crap about me. Nobody in this school does. He goes, no, young, you got it wrong. A lot of people that like you here, we just, we want you to end this problem with, um, I'll call him Bob because okay. I don't want to use his real name. But, yeah. um, you know, you just got to stand up to him, you know, show him who you are. I said, no, you don't understand something. If I lose my temper, I don't know if I can control myself. I will go after killing the guy. I don't want that on my conscience. I'm sorry. Right. Well, it turned out that the third year of soccer, I got nominated as co-captain of the team. Wow, and he, awesome. Yeah, but he stands up and goes, hey, he won't even stand up for himself. Why should we let him stand up for our team? And I just lost. I said, anytime, asshole, anytime, any place. He goes, how about no? I said, come on. So he knocked me down. I got up. He knocked me down. I got up. He knocked me down a third time. And that that's what triggered it. My my anger just lost control. I lost control. And I kicked him square in the uh, private parts and knocked them down, jumped on top of them. And because I was a wrestler, I was able to pin him down. And I started digging my fingers behind his eyes. I was going to pull his eyes out. And pretty much the whole team had to drag me off him. And then I left the field and a coach came down and said, I'm really sorry, coach. I, I, I don't know what got over me, but I've been warning the school that if I lost it, I wouldn't. He said, stop right there. The headmaster was in there cheering you on. I could see him cheering you on. And we all were cheering you on. And by the way, you got unanimously voted as co-captain. And, <laughs> and I looked at him and said, Coach, that's really sick. He said, what do you mean? I said, do you really have to do physical violence to get respected in this world? That's not a world I want to live in. Wow. So. Wow. So you actually were voted captain then? Yeah, like, well, that's incredible. I mean, you seem so intuitive even at that age, like you didn't want to fight, you didn't want to do it. And then that was eventually how you got some notoriety. And 
like, how do you think that impacted you? Well, it started to impact me because I started gaining a little confidence because being undefeated in wrestling, being one of the best defensemen in hockey, I started having a sense of who I was and what I could contribute. And uh, my senior year, the hockey coach pulled the team together and said, this is Callis with the rest of the seniors who are leaving us. You should watch how he plays. There are two things that can get by him, a puck or a man. I've never seen both of them get by him, ever. Watch how he, how he plays, because I was very aggressive. I mean, if somebody came at me, they'd wind up in the bleachers or on the floor and would get in a fight. <laughs> I just had a, an outlet for all my anger. So I guess the impact with the different coaches, um, uh, hindsight became my mentoring beginning. And I started feeling like, mm, maybe there is something here. Maybe, maybe I got to look at it from a different perspective. And, you know, it's, it's my life. I, you know, I got to figure this out because I don't like how I feel. I don't like how I'm living my life. And I don't like the disrespect I have of my own self being. Right. It's interesting though, because you were, you know, you talk so much about peace and then this kid pushes you to the brink of a fight and you get even more aggressive and physical than you wanted to because your anger gets a hold of you. Yet, you know, you were trying to be this peaceful person. And it sounds like you excelled completely in sports and that was your outlet. But did you have negative feelings about, like, I can't believe I just beat this guy up? Like, what were you feeling after that fight? Very relieved. Yeah. Yeah. I was relieved that it got out of my system and I was horrified that I almost ripped his eyeballs out. Yeah. Right. There's another, another part of the story. If you don't mind me taking a minute to explain it. Yeah, sure. Um, in the years he was bullying me, I used to go on my bed and I said, you know, if there is a God or universe, whatever's out there, I hope something happens to him so horrible that he'll understand the pain he caused me. Right. So everyone leaves. We go to college, blah, blah, blah. So I'm in LA and I win uh, the second year MTV award for best concept of the year for Smuggler's Blues with Glenn Fry. Wow. So we hop on a plane, my girlfriend and I at the time hop on a plane, and we're going to New York from LA. And there's a guy several rows ahead of us screaming, you know, this bud's for you. And I called the stewardess over, they were called stewardesses then. And I said, what's up with that guy? She goes, oh, he's just a stupid drunk. And I'm looking and looking and looking. And she goes, what are you thinking? I said, you know that guy in private school that used to bully me? She goes, yeah. I said, I think that's him. And I get up to go whack him. And she grabs me and says, what are you going to do, beat up a drunk? I said, <laughs> I said, you really know how to ruin a day, don't you? So uh, as the plane's boarding, I, I went up to him and said, is your name blah? And he goes, yeah, do I know you? I said, yeah, I'm the jerk that you beat up in private school. He goes, oh, we didn't like each other, did we? I said, I still hate your goddamn guts. Are you kidding me? What you put me through? And so we boarded the plane and we went down a baggage claim and I went up to him and I said, what, what's going on with you? Why are you drunk and stuff? He goes, John, I was, I was going to get married. And two weeks before my marriage, my uh, fiance was climbing a ladder and fell off and died. Oh. And, and I felt like horribly guilty that I had wished this on him. And I just went over and I hugged him and I whispered in his ear, I forgive you. I'm really sorry this happened to you. And I forgive you. Then I had to start to figure out how to forgive myself. Wow. And that was, that was another piece. Wow. Oh my goodness. What a story. Yeah. 
so it sounds like high school, other than this one real jerk bullying you and so forth, you really found yourself as an athlete going to this private school. And uh, what happens after boarding school? So you, you graduate right. from high school, the boarding school. All right. I go to a, a college in Massachusetts, and um, I meet a couple of people that were into the political arena. Uh-huh. So um, they got me involved in the Black Panthers and SDS, and uh, I wound up at the Boston riots and uh, all this other stuff. And um, I saw that that was going nowhere. And then that year was Kent State, where three three um, students were killed, and it broke the peace movement. And so our school closed down like every other school in the country. And I had to go to... Um, uh, a, a counselor in, in New York to find another college to start next year. And he said, what, what's your interest? And by then I had uh, gotten out of chemistry because my chemistry teacher said, you know, uh, you do labs in 45 minutes when they take three hours. You're a great student. You're an A student, but you're out of my class. And I said, what do you mean I'm out of your class? He just said, I'm a good student. He says, you're not a chemist. You're not the guy with the pocket thing. You're an artist. You've got to find yourself. And then uh, an African-American friend of mine, Liz, convinced me to go and help her at the theater. And I was in just what I, what I thought was reading lines to help the, the guys at the theater. And I said to the director, I need to leave to do my homework. And he said, no, you can't. You're in the middle of rehearsal. And I looked at Liz and I said, what did you do? <laughs> and, and it was the leading role in the play. So um, wow. I, found, yeah, I found that group so loving and caring that... I, I felt like maybe maybe there's some hope here. Maybe yeah. something happened. And so, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you, what were your feelings at the time when the chemistry teacher was like, this isn't for you. You're a great student, but but this isn't you. How did that impact you? Well, to be honest with you, he got it out of me that I wanted to cure cancer because of my dad dying of it. And he said, you know, I had a feeling, he says, it's a really noble thing, but you're going to throw your life away. So the impact was I, I was sitting on the uh, grass in the quad thinking about it, and I thought, you know, he might be right. I really don't have a pa- I mean, I was good at chemistry, but I didn't have a passion for it. It wasn't something that was driving me. Right. I, had to study, I had to study really hard to get good grades, but uh, it just wasn't there. But the theater just got a hold of me somehow. And yeah. uh, the next year I wrote a play that they decided to put up for um, parents' teacher weekend, and I had to direct it. And so I got the bug. Wow. That's awesome. It does sound like the chemistry teacher was, it doesn't sound like they were being a jerk to you or anything like your previous experience with an educator. It did sound like they really wanted you to find your passion. And and even though you seemed good at chemistry, they really saw that it wasn't your passion and your drive. I give him every night thoughts of prayers for what he did. He actually sent me, in the right direction. Yeah. That's exactly what it sounded like. So, wow. So you found your passion in theater. You write a play. The school goes with the play. And and you must be... How's your mental health at this point, by the way? You know, you've been living a life of dealing with some serious traumas along the way from your dad passing away, your dog that your dad had given you passing away, your mom feeling like your mom abandoned you, right? You get bullied in high school how are you feeling now in college especially when you find this theater group that you latch on to 
Um, I guess the best way to say it is I was crippled mentally. I was still dealing with a lot of the issues, but I learned how to put a, a fake smile on my face so nobody could detect it. And you were, so that sounds like you're still struggling inside with it, but you put a face on and were able to manage and get by. I was starting to manage and get by, you know, yeah. it was not easy. And in my private moments, I had to deal with the hell I was still living in, but, um, and what yeah. what would those be like, your private moments? Well, thinking about my dad, thinking about the experience in military school, my friend getting hung, what happened at the Boston riots while I was in the middle of it, um, SDS, the Black Panthers. I mean, and the fact that I, I was scared to go to sleep because those nightmares would keep coming back of me falling in a spiral. So I had for about 10 years maybe two hours of sleep a night because I just didn't want to sleep. I was too scared to sleep. Wow. That, that sounds really difficult to deal with because, you know, I've talked on this show a lot about just how important sleep is and how we know during times of war, it's often used as torture, sleep deprivation. So two hours a night that had to have impacted you mentally and physically, I would think. It absolutely did, but I didn't realize it at the time because I was fighting not wanting to sleep because of the nightmares. Right. So I wasn't, I wasn't focused on what it was doing to my mental health or my physical health. So. And were you intentionally then avoiding sleep, and, and how were you doing that? I just wouldn't go to sleep. Right. So yeah. you'd be up watching TV or? Not drinking coffee, you know, yeah. doing, listening to music, you know. Right. Whatever it took. Whatever it took, I just didn't want to go to sleep. And at that point as well, no kind of therapy in your life, no kind of talk with anybody about your mental health? No, I was still, I had more questions than answers, and I was trying to work through them the best I could, and I, I was starting to lose that battle because I just didn't have any more answers. I, yeah. I was lost, totally lost. Right. So it sounds like really still struggling pretty heavily with mental health, but finding an outlet through through theater and, and gaining friendships there, it sounds like, as well. Yes, and I started making friends in um, college, and then when I went to Colorado to go to college is when things started really changing. So you, you left the college you were at? Yeah, well, they closed because oh, of right. the riots. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And then in, in Colorado, how did things change? Well, when I got there, I thought, I'm going to try and reset everything and try to figure something out. And I went because there was a program called the University Without Walls, which was designed for students that knew what they wanted to do. And so you have to take a couple of classes, and then they transfer you into that. And you work with a couple of professors and build your own curriculum. So naturally, um, about a week into the theater classes, I had read the whole book because uh, you know, I was really interested and the teacher started lecturing, and I raised my hand. He says, uh, yes. I said, you know what? You just said's wrong. <laughs> he looked at me, and the whole class looked at me, and I went, oh, dear, what did I just say? <laughs> I think I just stepped in it. And he said, why are you saying that? I, you know, I've been a teacher for X, and then he went through his whole resume, basically. I said, look, I appreciate it, but, you know, you're, you're telling us what's in Chapter 2. Chapter 7 contradicts everything you just said. He goes, how do you know what's in Chapter 7? I said, I read the book over the weekend. He said, you read the whole book over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I was bored. What do you want from me? And so he and I got into a pretty bad fight. And unbeknownst to me, the head of the theater department was sitting in the back of the room. 
And so when I left, she came up to me and said, can I talk to you? I said, oh, God. And I know who she was. And I said, I really apologize. I, you know, sometimes my mouth gets a little ahead of me. And, I, and she goes, no, stop, stop. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I've been waiting for somebody for years to tell this jerk off. Okay, there we go. (laughs) So she said, um, there's a theater in Denver uh, called the Third Eye Theater, Jean Favre. He's never taken a student in because he just doesn't want to work with students as interns. But uh, something tells me you might, you know, take a shot at it if you want me to set up an interview. I said, I'd love to. So she takes me down and he comes up. He goes, so what's your problem? And I look at him and I said, uh, I don't have a problem. What's your problem? And she, she, she would have just puts her head in her hand. She goes, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> and he goes, look, kid, I'm going to be straight with you. He's a real New Yorker, right? He goes, uh, you know, I don't hire students. I don't even bring, bring students in. I don't even pay them. But even interns, it, it's just too much work. And you're, you're all a pain in the ass. I said, you know, I got to tell you something. Looking around this shithole, you really need help. So if you don't want my help, that's on you, pal. But I don't need to listen to this crap. I'm out of here. So I turn around and start walking. He goes, wait a minute. I said, what? He goes, where are you from? I said, Jersey. He goes, well, we can't help that. I said, what, are you from New York? He goes, yeah. I said, well, that's your problem. Look at the gut on you. And Jesus Christ, how much do you eat a day? <laughs> and, and we just went at it. <laughs> but 20 minutes later, Julie's going, HOA, I'm really sorry. She goes, and he goes, no, no, no. This kid's got balls. When can you start? I said, after you apologize to me. He says, you want me to apologize to you? I said, yes. And you're going to say, please, can you work with me? He goes, you got some set of balls, kid. And he, he said, all right, I'm sorry. And please come work with me. I said, okay, I'll be here tomorrow. He said, okay. Wow. <laughs> we got in the car and Judith looked at me. She goes, I don't believe what just happened. I said, me neither. Again, I'm really sorry. I know my mouth gets me in trouble. She goes, no, I think that's exactly what Joey was waiting for, is somebody to stand up to him. And so I helped him rebuild the whole theater and that went from there. Wow. And that was uh, a part of your college program, doing an internship that, with him? Yeah, it was. And uh, he had to come to the, to the, uh, to the school and, and give uh, his attitude about what my accomplishments were. And the theater teacher that I got into a big fight with uh, said, well, Mr. Favre, I have several questions for you. And he said, look, you can stop right there. I don't care how many questions you have. I'm going to give you my report and you can stick your questions where the sun doesn't shine, but I'm not going to play this game with you. Okay. So whatever your questions are, I don't give a shit. Wow. <laughs> Go get them, Joey. Boom, boom. <laughs> Maybe so, that was part of the reason he didn't want to work with internships. He didn't he, with interns. He didn't want to deal with that piece. It, he didn't want to deal with the education or yeah. the, the nonsense that went around it. Right. And he gave me really a glowing remarks and everything. And, um, and my my lighting teacher that I worked with turned out to be in the same summer stock company that I did the following year. Wow. And so he got me out of the uh, intern program and into the traveling program with his theater group. So I got to travel all over the tri-state area uh, with the theater group. Wow. So it sounds like like that was like a big stepping stone part to, to lead you into the career you're in. It was, but um, I have to say, when I moved to the mountains of Colorado, I was at about mm, 8,400 feet. I had no, um, there were no computers at the time. I had no TV, no telephone. And frankly, in my cabin, there was no heat. Um, uh, it wouldn't heat the house. So I had to chop firewood because it got, you know, 35, 37 below zero 
where I lived because I was the last house with like four or five houses in this little nook um, before it turned into the National Forest of Colorado. So I was pretty far out there. Wow. And I met my neighbor, Mark O'Brien, and he taught me chess and he taught me life on a chessboard. And then he started teaching me about spirituality. He, he got my whole backstory of my dad. And he was the one that turned to me and he said, there's a couple of things you need to understand. I said, what, what OB? I called him OB. And he said, uh, first of all, all the people that you feel did you wrong in your life? I said, yeah, they did. And he said, no, they didn't. It was your perception of them doing wrong. You played the part in it, but you need to forgive not only them, but you need to start learning how to forgive yourself. And he just guided me so well that I started becoming a, a human being finally. And, you know, unfortunately, well, it, it's a funny way of saying it, but um, he used to tell me how he was going to die, which was he was going to get hit in the chest by lightning. And uh, when I was at Summerstock, I got the call from my friend Jimmy and he said, uh, you should sit down. I said, what? He goes, Mark's dead. I said, what do you mean he's dead? He said, a lightning bolt came down through 100-foot ponderosas and hit him square in the chest. You're and in, kidding. Nope. And in, in, the, um, in the newspaper, it said it's probably a, at least a million to one odds that a lightning bolt could even get through the ponderosa pines, let alone kill this guy. So I went back to Colorado um, and because I was living in California at the time, and um, we found a diary. And in the diary, one of the pages said, I had a dream with, about the Beatles, but uh, it's weird John Lennon wasn't in it. That November, John Lennon was assassinated. Then he said in the next page, he goes, having this strange dream, the chariots came with skeletons. And I said, nah, I can't come. I got to go see Callus on the coast. Then the next page was, hmm, having a strange dream about pure energy. The next night he was dead. And he always knew he was going to die. And he said it, it would be the greatest rush in the world because... You just transform into energy. And uh, I'll never forget that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, it seems like he had a huge impact on your life. Monumental. Yeah. I really missed that man. Yeah. Wow. And you, uh, this was after college when that happened? Uh, no, actually, that was um, at the conclusion of my undergraduate work. And then I was heading to L.A. to do my master's degree. Okay. Right, right. So you left the undergrad in Colorado, went to California for the master's? I did. Okay, and the master's was in? Theater arts. Okay, right. And how did that program go for you, and, and how was your mental health at that point? Well, I thought I was okay until, <laughs> until uh, all my classmates kind of turned against me. And I, I looked at them one day and said, what's going on here? Because I was acting at the time, right? Okay. And and they said, well, you're the big shot with all the theater experience. You know, why don't you tell us how to do things? And I thought, oh, crap, here we go again. And I said, look, I'm going to be straight with you. If I knew everything, I wouldn't be in class trying to learn. I'm here to get my master's because I don't know a lot. If I knew everything, I wouldn't be here. And I don't get this. So I was pretty much ostracized and, you know, people didn't want to do scenes with me and everything. And then the head of the theater department, got wind of it and he pulled me in his office and he said so I'm going to tell you something you need to consider I said what's that Omar he said you know I've been watching you and talking to you over the you know past time and um, I think you should look at directing not acting I said why is that he goes I did. you just have this mind that 
seems to be able to put things together. He says, I know your program is designed for five years, but I can have you out in two if you want to work with me. I wow. said, okay. But that meant like three to five plays a week. I had to analyze. I had to tell him every single line, what it was meant, what character it was for, how it was going to affect the plot, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, one one week, if I might digress for a second. Sure, yeah, of course. Okay. okay. One week he gave me George Bernard Shaw. And I came in and we started talking. He goes, nah, I don't think so. I said, you know, Omar, I love you, but I don't think you understand Shaw that well. Because if you feel that way, and he said, here, go to the library and get this book. I said, okay. So I go to the library and the woman says, no, go downstairs. So I go downstairs and I hand the librarian the, the uh, number and she goes, oh, I'll be right back. So she puts this giant book on, on the table and I open it and it says, world leading authority, doctoral degree by Omar Paxson, George Bernard Shaw. I went, oh, Christ. <laughs> so, and I closed it, I handed it back to her. She goes, you, you don't want to read anymore? I said, no, nah, I think I've read enough. And so I go into the office the next day that, you know, where he was teaching me. And he goes, did you read the book? I said, I got by the first page. And he started laughing. He goes, all right, now let's figure out where you went wrong with Shaw. And he never admonished me. He always encouraged. He said, you know, I like the fact you have an opinion I just need to understand how you got that opinion so we can work through it and make sure that you find a better process to understanding this kind of literature. Right. And it was really a, a wonderful experience with him. How did you feel at first when, when he said, you know, I think you need out of acting and you need to move into directing? Were you at all frustrated or disappointed because you had been working on acting? Actually, it's a dual-edged sword because I was also taking a minor in filmmaking, and the woman who taught the class was a uh, very famous documentary uh, woman. And so one of our things is we had to shoot a, a Super 8 you know, um, film and cut it together and present it to the class with audio. At the end of the class, she asked me to stay, and I said, what's up? She goes, you know, John, um, looking at what you did, you've got a really good eye. You might want to be either a director of photography or a director. And this is just about the same time Omar said the same thing. Wow. So, I, yeah, so I went home and I was thinking, now here's a famous uh, documentary woman filmmaker and my master's degree telling me I need to look at something different. How invested am I in this? And I thought, mm, I don't know. And then an act, a, a casting director, an older lady, came on to me and if I wanted the part in this thing that I had to sleep with her. And I said, okay, that, that ended it for me right there. I said, I can't play this game. No, 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 I'm not going to do it. So I, uh, I switched over to directing. Wow. Wow. Hey, I want to go back just for a minute when you talked about all these other actors kind of ostracizing you and so forth. Do you have any thoughts about how or why that happened? It was because they were jealous, basically, okay. because they knew I had worked in professional theater. I had d done... The Denver Lyric Opera had composed and, and performed for Bert, uh, Bertolt Brecht's The Good Woman of Szechuan, um, uh, Sitar, because I was playing Sitar at the time. Okay. So, um, you know, I think when they heard everything I had already accomplished and been in professional plays and, right. and all that, um, you know, they thought, oh, here comes Mr. Hoity Toity. He knows everything. And yeah. I, I really didn't. Right, so. right. Wow. So these. Uh two professors get you on the idea of directing and you start directing and did you just love that experience right away? I mean, were you feeling like this is it? This is my, this is my gig. It was because I understood what it was to be the actor. 
Right. And by do, doing that, I had that language and I knew that they were vulnerable. So I had to make it a safe environment for them to be able to play. Right. And right. So it, it was a win-win for both sides. Yeah. And then, so you finish grad school and what do you do then? Like, how do you jump into this business and how do you start to make a name for yourself? Because I know now... Like you're you're really well known. You've been working in Hollywood. You've been doing a, a ton in Hollywood. What's it like right after grad school for you? Well, I have to rewind that. Um, after grad school, um, I had absolutely no contacts in the film business. Nothing, no work, nothing. Right. Um, but but prior to um, my finishing of grad school, I was having dinner one night. And I was doing my master's degree and I looked over and everyone's giggling at some guy in the corner who was dressed all in white and he was bald. And he was sitting there very, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe stiff is the right word. And so he and I caught eyes and I nodded. He nodded. I went back to work and he sat down next to me and said, what are you doing? So I told him I was putting together my master's degree. And he said, can I come watch it? I said, yeah, of course. So we became friends and we talked for six months and Back then, I was not, and I'm still not, the kind of guy that shakes your hand and says, what do you do for a living, and how can you help me? You know, it just right, right. wasn't part of my life. So about six months in, I said, hey, um, what do you do for a living? He goes, oh, I'm an art director in the film business. I said, no kidding, really. He goes, why, you want to get in? I said, I've been trying. I just can't get arrested. He goes, all right, let me see what I can do. So one morning at 3 a.m., he called me and dragged me onto a set, um, and it's there where I met this guy named Harry Woolman, Stuntman uh, swung from the bell tower. He doubled for all the famous people in Hollywood. And uh, make a long story short, because it's a funny story, but it, it'll take 15 minutes and it's too long of a story. But the, the short story is that he took me under his wing, and for about two or three years, I was blowing up people's brains, blowing up cars, and it just became a lot of fun. And then I transferred into the art department, and I was sitting at lunch one day, and somebody said, What do you think of the, the film? I said, I think the film's good, but the actors are really having a hard time with their dialect because they don't know what they're talking about because they have a, uh, an, a you know, brogue accent. It should be more of an English accent. So the guy next to me says, you know a lot about that, huh? I said, no. Yeah, I, I do, actually. And he stands up and said, what are you doing? The guy on the other side says, that's the director. I went, oh, dear God. <laughs> this, my life is just one step after another <laughs> slipping in it. So he introduces me as the new... Um, dialogue director for the film oh so my goodness he takes me out of the art department puts me in dialogue directing and i got the film back on pace with the right dialogue and everything and so he said to me uh, i'm doing another film would you like to be my assistant director i said sure i had no idea what it was so the first day i called the crew together i said i'm your assistant director and you can see everyone rolling their eyes because the ad's are not really well like because they're the taskmasters right. i said Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to put my cards on the table. They said, okay. I said, this is my first job as an assistant director. I haven't any clue what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I could really use your help. And they all looked. They said, you want our help? I said, I would appreciate it. And they were so enamored by the fact that somebody actually asked them, a crew member, for help. They taught me how to be a really good AD. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. I mean, that's the that right there is the power of vulnerability, right? Yeah. I mean, you said, hey, I'm new to this, and, and I need your support. And they yeah. love the fact that you were honest. You didn't come in and pretend that you knew it all, and, and just, you know, that is really, really cool. So they, they loved it and supported you. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Then, awesome. um, then I started uh, doing some things called UPM work, which is unit production manager, because um, I don't know, somebody's caught that I was really good with numbers, and uh, I didn't care how big a number was, it just fit in a budget, and you'd spend it or you don't, you know. And uh, so I became a really good UPM, and then one day a friend of mine said, hey, you, uh, you want to do a commercial as a producer? I said, I've never done a commercial producer, I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, well, how much do you make? And at the time I was making like $350 a week. He goes, no, 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 that's going to be your day rate. I said, I can't ask for that kind of money. You got to be out of your mind. And so he took me in, introduced me to the guy, and he said, if you don't take that rate and tell him that's your rate, I'm going to stand up and say, I think I got the wrong guy. So we, <laughs> we, we were talking along, and so the guy says, so what's your rate? And I went, well, I mean, well, uh, <clears throat> well, it's uh, $350 a day. He goes, oh, okay, so you're in alignment. Um, can you start Monday? I said, sure. I got in the car, I was screaming and hollering up and down. I was jumping like a crazy man. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And then at the same time, uh, I got introduced to doing music videos and that's, that took off like a, a, a fire truck. I mean, I just loved doing it. It was just a world of creativity. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that is where you thrive, right? Through your creative nature. Yep. Um, and so these experiences that you just shared with us, was this while you were still a master student? No, that was the, um, okay. It was after the Masters when I got the call from my friend because gotcha. I, I was in a really deep depression. I was crying every night because I could see the lights of Hollywood twinkling. And I said, I'm a complete failure. I moved from the mountains. I did my master's degree. I can't get arrested. I don't know anybody. I'm a complete, utter failure. Yeah. And I would just fall on my bed. And then one night I just jumped up and I said, you're not a failure. You just got to find a way. Work harder. You'll figure it out. And then that's when the call came and right. it started changing. Wow. That's phenomenal. So at this point, you know, you mentioned depression again, yet you still have no professional help at this point, no medicines, no therapy. What are you doing that is keeping you going and not falling into a deep, dark depression where you just, you know, are staying in bed all day, not being able to get up and out? You talked about beating yourself up, right? Like, um feeling a failure and so forth? Yeah. Well, truth be known, I started smoking weed. Okay. And uh, it was, I wouldn't say the greatest thing to do if you're depressed because it, it doesn't help. Self-medicating does not help, in, in my opinion. I mean, maybe there are people out there that can handle it. But it, it would make me happy for a while enough so that I'd go out and explore. Because, I don't know, when I got stoned, I was antsy and I needed to get out and walk around and you know, explore things. So that's what got me out of the apartment. Um, and that helped. But about two years into that, uh, I was talking to a director of photography friend that um, he and I befriended each other. And we're still friends to this day after f almost 50 years. And uh, I told him what was going on. I, you know, I, I just had to admit it to him. He goes, I'm glad you said something. I said, why? Well, I just always knew there was something behind those eyes of yours. I said, okay. He goes, I belong to a group, but I said, no, nah, I don't want to go in a group. He said, no, but at least talk to the therapist. So I went, I talked to her and, um, and she convinced me to go into the group. And that's where a lot of my, uh, healing started in, in big ways. And was that, so was that a therapy group, like a support group led by a therapist? It was, it was group therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And, awesome. uh, and the first day they asked me, so what, what's up with you, John? I said, you know, honestly, I have more questions than I have answers, and I'm, 
I, I'm just not prepared to talk right now. And they said, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, and after several um, meetings, I finally started talking. And after a while, I mean, a good while, I started realizing that everybody in the group was laughing after they were telling their stories. And there wasn't any angst about their depression or anxiety. They learned to laugh at it. And then I started laughing at my own. And I realized, okay, maybe I'm more of a happy neurotic now. <laughs> right, right. Uh, wow. But, yeah. So working with that therapy group, in addition to, to seeing people share their stories and laugh, were there other kind of takeaways? How else did that support you in your road to recovery? Well, that's when I started journaling and writing down everything that had happened in my life because I just didn't want to forget it. I, I felt if I wrote it down and was able to let it go, um, it would help in my recovery. I did a thing called the artist's way, which is supposed to last 12 weeks where you write three pages a day. A year later, I was still writing three pages a day. Wow. And yeah, I just couldn't stop. It was just really therapeutic. And every time in the morning I wake up, that was the first thing I did. So I, I had set, unbeknownst to myself, I had set a healthy goal for mental health. And I just, I was working it. And I told my therapist, and she goes, that's the best thing you could have done for yourself. And, um, and it started uh, healing. Right. Um, but the real healing, uh, Al, to be honest with you, is one day I went back to my family because I had spent Thanksgiving and Christmases alone in my little apartment in Venice. And I went back one year and I was, I talked to my mom and I said, why don't you want to talk about dad? She goes, it hurts too much. And so we're in my sister's bathroom and we sat on the floor and she goes, I'm going to make you a deal, John. I said, what's that, mom? She said, I know we've had a strained relationship. I know you have a lot of questions about your father that are unanswered. I'm going to say tonight, you can ask me anything and everything if you promise me one thing. And I said, sure. She goes, ask all you need to know, but after tonight, I never want to talk about it again. I said, you got a deal. So she answered all my questions, honestly and openly. And then I said, I have one more thing that's not related to dad. I said, what's that? And I said, mom, when you were on the train station and the train started pulling out, you turned away. And all I could see is your figure getting smaller and smaller. And I just felt like you hated me. And she burst out crying. I burst out crying. And she said, I turned around because I was crying. I couldn't stand seeing my 12-year-old baby get on a train. And I knew it was the only choice I had. And she goes, every night until I talked to you, I was crying every night. I could not stop crying because I was so scared for you. But yet on the phone, she'd say, oh, they're not doing that to you. you got, you're making all this up. Because she knew if she let into the emotion, she'd come down and get me and pull me out. Yeah. Well, and it was probably easier for her to believe it wasn't happening than to deal with the emotional trauma of understanding what you were really going through. I, I agree with that statement 100%. Yeah. But that, that was a very cathartic moment in oh my, my life. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Because I got to see it from her viewpoint, not mine. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is such a cool turning point, I think, because like you said, your perspective, which totally makes sense as a 12 year old, right? There's exactly. mom, she's turning her back. She's walking away and sending me on a train. And here we go again with more abandonment, another yep. person in my life. And really she was busting in tears because it wasn't what she wanted to do. And she loved and cared for you so much. 
Wow. And, yeah. and, you know, also I think, you know, now in adulthood, you can probably think too, to the amount of trauma she was dealing with, with losing the husband too. Monumental. Yeah. Right. Which you can't think of as a 12 year old. And, and why would you? No. Um, wow. So though, ah, what a huge turning point and really awesome that your mom, you know, who obviously didn't want to talk about your dad because she was in such hardship from it, um, gave you that night, which was just a huge gift. It sounds like. Yeah, it was. And I, I, at some level, I think she wanted to heal with me. Yeah. And after that, after that, we were thicker than thieves. I called her every week, a couple times a week. We laughed. I mean, if you don't mind a little off, off color yeah, yeah, yeah. conversation, um, I called her one night and I was complaining about something. And she said, oh, honey. I said, what, Mom? She goes, it sounds like you need Mommy's sympathy. I said, you know, I could use a little. She goes, look it up in the dictionary. It's between shit and syphilis and hung up on me. <laughs> I called her. She was laughing. I started laughing. She goes, feel better? I said, yeah, you always had really good parenting skills. I love you, Mom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my goodness. It just snapped me right out of it. <laughs> yeah. It was great. Wow. That we called funny. her a very colorful woman. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I, and I give you a lot of credit for the courage of saying, hey, Mom, tell me about this time when you turned your back on me in the train. Because that was clearly still weighing on you as an adult. Well, I was trying to on, be honest about it. I was trying to make her feel the guilt that I was in so much pain. Right. And when she told me the other side of it, it, it literally, I felt like a 50-pound weight came off my shoulders. And instead of being so absorbed in my own shit, I actually got to hear my mother's side, which I had never considered as a young kid. Yeah. This wasn't in the cards. Well, and, and to give yourself some, you know, some grace, like at age 12, you shouldn't be worrying about your mom's trauma, right? At age no. 12, you shouldn't have to, right? True. Wow. Wow. So therapy group, um, were you seeing the therapist individually as well? I started individual and okay. then she, she slowly talked me into, which was a battle, but she won, um, slowly talked me into the group therapy because she knew I needed to socialize and yeah. I needed to feel more normalized. Right. And are you still doing some therapy? No, actually, um, I have, my friend David, who I told you, you know, he was the guy that got me in therapy. Yeah. Um, he, um, he and I talk openly, and like if I have a wobbly day, I call him and say, "David, here's what's going on," and he'll listen, and we'll talk through it. And it's like we're both therapists for each other. Yeah. And it's it's a I I trust him implicitly, so when he says something, I always know it's he means the best for my mental health yeah. and vice versa. Right. Right. So how long in the end would you say you were in group therapy and individual therapy? Um, I'm going to say between two and three years. Okay. And did you ever do any like specific uh, therapy around your trauma of losing your dad and so forth? Or did you get to work through some of that through the group therapy? Um, I, I dealt with that pretty much exclusively between therapist and I and in group because everything I could talk about with my depression and anxiety and traumas circled around starting with my dad and going through all those things. So I had to expose all of that yeah. rawness to the group. Right. 
and they would listen and, and offer their feedback. And one gal said, yeah, I lost my dad at 15, I think she said. And she goes, you know, I was listening to you and I was wondering, is it better to lose your dad early in life or later in life? And I looked at her and said, I don't think there's an answer because the pain is the pain. And how can you measure one pain from another? Right. So. I, I, you know, just to throw my own thoughts in there, I, I think um, losing and me having lost my father in 2019 and um, mm. as an adult, I think uh, I had many, many years that I feel like you lost because of his early death. You know, so I think losing, yes, it's painful to lose a father in my adulthood. That was super sad and painful, but I, at least I have so many years of memory and him supporting me too to lean into. Well, you had a father figure, which was very important. And yeah. by the way, I'm very sorry for your loss, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, wow. So you tell us about just, I mean, in Hollywood, you've done some huge trailers you've worked with some big time actors tell us about some of your highlights in your career well my favorite is uh when i got introduced to tristar sony pictures and um my production company that i had formed uh around 1983 i guess it was i formed it um was uh brought to the meeting to do the production on the tristar logo so i co-directed and produced the logo um, with Anthony Goldschmidt from Interlink Film Graphic Design, who had the client, the studio as the client. And um, the research that went into that to make that it was amazing because at the time, CGI was not a big uh, thing. So the uh, studio head said that everything in the painting that they presented, they did not want CGI because it was still too sloppy. They wanted everything to be live action. So I had to figure out how to build a 60-foot truss with clouds, battened with wires, and a big backdrop that was hand painted and figure out how to get a horse to run a hundred yards and stop in front of the camera. And I mean, yeah, it was quite, quite an ep episode. Wow. What about, uh, some of the actors you've worked with and met any, uh, any favorites? Um, Robert De Niro, I think was, uh, amazing. I, when I worked on raging bull, I was asked to go to the ring. This is my one and only uh, embarrassing story about any actor because as a, as a previous actor, I don't look at them as some idol worship person. They were, they're just people that have a very wonderful skill if they get to that level. Right. But, but for some reason, De Niro, I just, I, I just worship the guy's work, you know? So I run over to the gym where he's boxing, you know, practicing, and I held up the envelope and he said, yeah, in a second. He came out of the ring. He takes his glove off. He sticks his hand out and he says, hi, what's your name? And I'm shaking his hand. I'm looking. I go, Robert De Niro. And he smiles at me and he goes, no, that's my name. What's your name? <laughs> and I said, oh, here we go again. Nice step in that pile. <laughs> so I hand him the envelope and I take off running. And he goes, hey, wait a minute. I said, what's up? He goes, you're going to want an answer to this, aren't you? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting there just about peeing my pants, you know, because I just wanted to get out of there because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> right. Um, Jack Nicholson, very easy to work with. Um, Mel Gibson, wonderful gentleman. Uh, Mel Brooks, <laughs> funny story again. Uh, he and I were on the set and he'd been telling jokes. And, um, and then one day I came in, I said, Hey, and I tell, tell a joke, right? Everyone laughs. He puts his arm around me. He's, he goes, Hey kid. I said, yeah. He goes, 
I'm the funny one here. I tell the jokes. You don't tell the jokes. You get it? I said, okay, no, no problem. No problem. <laughs> I, I wouldn't tell any jokes. So he was fun. That is funny. Well, I got to tell you, Robert De Niro, Jack Nicholson, those are a couple of my favorites. They're amazing people. Yeah. And Mel Gibson, I think he's an incredible actor. I was just a little disappointed to find out that he was a Holocaust denier. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's never easy, is it? <laughs> so, wow. So incredible work. I mean, you have such a powerful story, just like battling through so much trauma, so much hardship, yet perseverance to to be a, a Hollywood you know, director, writer, producer, what do you think was, what would you say are kind of the key pieces that, that allowed you to continue such a tough path and to persevere? Honestly, I think, I think it was in the middle of the night one night, I was just thinking and I thought everything I see around me started as a thought. And then somebody manufactured that, couch or chair or whatever it was but it was it started as a thought so if if i want to change my life i have to start looking at the world from a, through a different lens a different point of view and i said poverty sucks and i was really poor as a church mouse at the start of this and i said i have to make the decision to want a better life and if i don't do it nobody else is going to do it it's clear in my life nobody's going to do it for me so i've had a lot of support and stuff but I've got to be the one that puts on my big boy boots and get out there and do something for my life. And believe me, Al, it was not easy. It was painful. It was a lot of emotions, but I started coming up with creative ways to get into companies and um, it seemed to resonate. So once I caught on to that, I kept pushing it really hard. Yeah. Um, I think that's what motivated me most to write my book, When the Rain Stops, because I want people out there who are suffering to know that they can have a happy, successful, wonderful life. Right. They have to be the ones to ask for the help. Nobody can force help on them. Yeah, it's, it, They've got to be ready and willing and able to do the work. Yeah. And they can, and they can. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you said to do the work. And the work might look different for different people, but I absolutely. always talk about like recovery taking time and effort, right? You yep. do have to put effort into it. And like I would never blame anybody for like – you can't, how, how do I want to say it? Like, it's not your fault for dealing with depression and becoming depressed, but it is your responsibility to work at recovering from it. Um, and you just worked so hard and it has paid off immensely. So I know you've been uh, mentioning it a couple of times, but you authored a book that was published about a year ago, was it? About that, yeah. Yeah, and it's called When the Rain Stops. And this is your memoir, correct? Yes, it is. Anything more you want to share about it? And like I said, I, I haven't read it yet. I read an excerpt or two, and your writing is amazing. I, I, it, to me, like your writing seems to be as good as your producing and directing, which is clearly successful. Thank you. That's a, a heck of a compliment. I appreciate that. Um, I guess what I would add to it is that if you are suffering and you're kind of lost, which we all are, um, I found depression to be a very safe haven at some point. It was lonely, it was scary, but it was mine and I owned it. And it was really hard to get out of that comfort zone because it was the only place I knew and that I could control. So 
the reason I wrote the book is to be honest, uh, pulled the scars off, I, you know, scabs off, and I, I, I went into some serious hard times writing the book because it was so painful. But I wanted people to see that no matter how bad it gets, there is hope, but it has to start with you. You have small baby steps, even if it means getting out of bed and making your bed. And that's all you do for the whole day. You made progress. You, you moved forward. So if you can do that in baby steps and start building that, eventually you too can get out there and, and live your life. But you have to decide for yourself. So I just wanted to pay it forward and offer hope to people with this book and um, send them on their journey. And what you said was very important. It, it's different paths for different people. So my path was mine. And if it's a template for everyone to cut and paste their path into it, then all the better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really like how you also mentioned, you know, sometimes depending on just how depressed you are, it is baby steps. It's setting some really small goals, right? Like you said, I got out of bed and made my bed. And if that's how deep you are and that's an accomplishment, then that's awesome. And you, the only piece I would add is you need to pat yourself on the back and recognize I am working at this. And this is a step in the right direction. And then, you know, increase those goals gradually and take some bigger steps and always recognize that effort that you're putting into working towards that recovery because it's so important. Absolutely. And try to find the language where you can communicate to somebody you trust. Yes. A friend, a therapist, a parent, whatever, a, you know, whoever you feel you can talk to about it. Don't, you can't keep it bottled up. At some point, you have to get it out. Yes, yes, yes. So again, the book is called When the Rain Stops. It's your memoir. I bet you get into a lot of the stories you shared with us, but probably in much greater detail even. Yes. People can find that, I'm guessing, on Amazon and such. Yes. If they type in When the Rain Stops by John Callis, they can do that. Awesome. Uh, and I'm going to make your audience an offer that I did on Instagram. And I got a few calls and I spent a lot of time on the phone with them. After they read the book, if they still feel that there's, there's something that they, they need help with, reach out to me and I will set up a phone conversation and we'll talk through it together because I understand their language. I know what they're going through having had a firsthand experience of it. So I can talk to them without any judgment and just answer their questions and hopefully point them in a direction that's helpful for them. Yeah. Wow. That's an awesome offer. Thank you so much for doing that. My pleasure. So in addition to just, you know, Googling and finding when the rain stops by John Callis, um, any other ways that they can connect with you or find out more about you? Sure. Um, I have a website, johncallis.com. And that's my, probably 95% of my career is in there. Awesome. All right. Fantastic. And then I know you just did it, but the way I love wrapping up these interviews is just asking for one big piece of advice for somebody who might be listening to this show. And again, I know you gave just several pieces of advice, but if somebody's listening right now and they're really struggling, what would be your, your first and maybe biggest piece of advice to them? Okay. I would say it is okay to feel how you're feeling. Don't let anyone take that away from you. I think you have to look at it and say, I can and will have a better life. Uh, basically, don't give up on yourself. Yeah. You're worth it. You're a human being. The gift of life is for you to have, nobody else. So just 
keep at it and do your baby steps and talk, learn to communicate, try to find ways to get out there and figure it out. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, John, I, I just I want to thank you. I, I love the fact that you wrote a memoir and you're trying to give back to to folks. And uh, and I really uh, your your work is incredible. Your story is inspirational. And uh, I just I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Depression Files. My pleasure, Al. I hope it helps. Awesome. Well, make sure you stay healthy. You too, brother. Thank you for listening to the Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show, or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>